Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. You can go and have a seat. And if right now the uh, children that are going to be heading up to Kids Church, uh, they can head up there um, at this time and uh, get to know a little bit more about Jesus. Uh, we are in a series right now called Epiphany. Uh, my name is Dwayne, and I'm one of the uh, pastors here at the District Church, and so it's good to be with you. Uh, I want to say Happy New Year to everyone. Welcome to 2020. Um, that sounds crazy saying it, uh, but it is, it is our reality. Um, like I said, we are in a series called Epiphany, and what Epiphany is is in the liturgical calendar of just church history, uh, Epiphany tends to follow Advent season. So Advent is kind of the, the awaiting period, the angst building up for the expectant arrival of Jesus being born. And so Advent is a season, uh, the five Sundays leading up to Christmas, um, where we are just celebrating the birth of Jesus and kind of what all the implications of that is for us. And then the church moves into a season called Epiphany following that, uh, which tends to be the five uh, Sundays following Christmas that look at um, how Christ now showing up is then revealing himself to the world. How is he making himself known? Um, and so one of the ways that we kind of focus this month of January um, in Epiphany is how Christ has used the church to make himself known to the world. And so it's really just looking at uh, who we are as a church and what God has called us to, to be and accomplish as a community of faith in order to see his glory spread um, and to see disciples be made for his glory and for our joy. And so uh, what we're walking through over this, um, this little five-week series is really just kind of our mission statement. Uh, the district church exists to glorify God. That's the number one thing. God exists for, for his glory, and he, wants, uh, he created mankind in order to glorify him, to worship him, to honor him, to praise him. So his mission, if you were to literally just sum up the mission of God in all of the Bible, is his glory. He wants his glory spread over the earth, as, as Habakkuk 2.14 says, uh, to spread over the earth like the waters cover the sea. And when I lived down in Miami, there was one time where we went out uh, deep sea fishing to where we could not see land, and I'm looking around, and this verse came to mind. There's, there's water everywhere, um, and this is what God wants his glory to look like is just spread everywhere. Um, and so the mission in which God then commissions to us, to mankind, to spread his glory is through the Great Commission, the Matthew 28 passage, where he's telling us to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so what he wants us to do is come to know Christ and then teach Christ, share Christ, make disciples of Christ all over the earth. Because as a disciple, as you're growing in the commands of Christ, as you're observing all that he's commanded, all that he's taught, all of his lifestyle, your life becomes his life. You begin to talk like he talks, think like he thinks, have affections like he has affections, has desires like he has desires. And what those actually look like if you were to give words to them are the fruit of the Spirit. You become more loving, more joyful, more patient, more kind, more generous, more gentle, more self-control is in your life. So, so those things put on display the glory of God in the individual life of a person. 
And so us as a church, we have ministries or we are a ministry that is putting those things at the forefront in what we call or, or kind of the way we play it out, the discipleship traits. And so we think that as a disciple, these characteristic traits are going to be the things that bring about true discipleship, that bring about a person coming to know Christ, growing in a relationship with Christ, so that they can then take that commission to others and begin making disciples as well. So we say the district church exists to glorify God by making disciples through, and these are the traits, gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered community, gospel-centered service, and gospel-centered multiplication. That's the mission statement of our church. That's why we exist. Those four things, and as Josh shared last week, um, we are very redundant with gospel centrality because without the gospel, without the good news, we would not be able to worship. We would not be able to belong to a community of faith. We would not serve, and we would not multiply. We would not make more disciples if it weren't for the good news of Jesus Christ, if it weren't for his life, his death, his resurrection, if it weren't for his teachings, if it weren't for his commands, if it weren't for his life, we would not be able to have life and life abundantly. So gospel-centeredness in how we worship, gospel-centeredness in how we belong to one another in community, gospel-centeredness in how we serve one another as well as serving those outside of this church, and gospel-centeredness in how we actually make disciples and multiply. So if we're not tied to that gospel, then we're not a church. And we shouldn't do this every Sunday. And we shouldn't get together throughout the weeks if we're not focused on the good news. The good news that has come into this bad world, this dark place, this domain of darkness, as Colossians 1 says, that good news is what we anchor ourselves to. It's what we hold on to. It's, it's the reason why we get up. Um, it's the reason why we come in here and worship is because he's giving us good news. And it's his life and it's death, his death and his resurrection that is filling us up every single moment, every single hour. We need more Jesus. And so as Josh covered gospel centrality last week, if you weren't here last week, I'd love for you to go back and just listen to that. What we mean by gospel centeredness, how we define the gospel, how we uh, want that in every nook and cranny of your life, that was last week. This week, we're specifically moving into gospel centered worship. And so what do we mean by worship? And I know there are some kind of misconceptions out there on worship. I just want to cover a few of them before we dive into kind of the thick of our text here. Um, some believe worship is based on the confidence of our faith in Jesus or the quality of our faith in Jesus. So some people believe that worship is kind of based around this idea of like, I muster up the energy to worship him. And so therefore, my worship of him is dependent upon me. Like it's dependent upon everything that I did or did not do during the week. It's dependent on everything that I'm thinking or not thinking or feeling or not feeling. Like it's all based on what I bring to the table in order to worship him. And so sometimes people talk about the fact that like worship is a, is a process in which we empty ourselves for Jesus. And that's not a reality. That's not true. Matthew 28, 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. We're talking the 11 disciples here, right before Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. He's about to give them the great commission. He asked them to come to a mountain. They come, they worship him, and some doubt. 
We're talking, this is his A team. This is the team that he picked in order to take his commission and to literally spread it across the entire world. 11 of them have come. Where you might be thinking, well, I thought there was 12. There was Judas. He betrayed Jesus. He's gone. He's not been replaced yet. We're looking at 11. Of these 11, some of them are literally in that moment, on that mountaintop, about to spend some more time with Jesus, thinking, I don't know if this is legit. I don't know if he's the one. I've got concerns. I've got some worries. Maybe I don't have, I've got a lot of questions that aren't answered. I've got a lot of things going on to me right now where I don't know if I have the full confidence in what this is. And what I think that should do for us is allow us to kind of have a sigh of relief. Just kind of sit in our chairs right now and be like, man, that is good news. That's good news because I've got questions. I've got doubts. I've got worries. I've got concerns. I've got issues. I've got things going on. Can I worship because of the sin I thought on the way here? Can I worship because of the fight I had last night? Can I worship? Can I do this? Am I qualified to do this? Did he pick the right person? Am I a believer? Am I not a believer? Like we can have these doubts and these questions at all times, but here's the reality is, is our relationship with Christ, our worship of him is not based on the quality of your faith, but it's based on the quality of our Savior. Worship is about Him, not about you. It's about Him. It's why the Bible keeps telling us to fix your eyes on Him. Don't fix your eyes on your situation. Fix your eyes on Him. That's one of the reasons why we actually do have a time of confession in our services because we know that there's things that you bring in here that are causing you to have doubt, that are causing you to feel like I can't worship because I'm dealing with this, I'm warring with this. And in confession, what we're saying is take your junk off of yourself and place it on him and let's get the quality of our faith placed on him, not yourself. Because it's about Jesus in order for us to actually come and worship. It's when we ponder and think and, and just meditate on him when we actually begin to truly worship. Some believe worship is a list of rules that we follow that many times haven't come from God, but from people. I've heard some silly ones throughout the years. I came from a church where, um, again, it, it was a, a building. I mean, all churches are essentially buildings, um, but at the same time, it's not about the building. It might just be lim or called the church. But for whatever reason, people felt like this is a holy place in which you should not be allowed to dance in it. It's like we couldn't get married because we wanted to dance at our wedding. So we weren't going to get married at our church because we wanted to dance. But this was a rule by men put in place because they felt like it was going to lead to something bad if you were to dance with one another, which we're getting married and we're hoping it leads that way. <laughs> but like... I'm sorry. Um, but it's just, and so like there's, there's these silly rules that people put in place, like women should not cut their hair and it should just grow forever. Like we had a, a religion in my hometown that was similar to that. Like there, there's just a lot of rules that we put around Christianity that we think is our um, efforts to worship better. And we just end up looking silly. I mean, this happened with the Pharisees where they were so in love with the law that they were literally like, let's, let's create some more laws around the laws. And so like their idea of just tithing a tenth of their first fruits, they're like, we've got to tithe a tenth of everything. They were literally tithing a tenth of their spices. It's like, we got any dill leaves? Let's take one out, leave nine, and let's give it to the Lord. Like that's how they were thinking. And it's just silly. 
But yet we think about this and we operate this way. In Mark 7, 7, the Lord says, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so if we're teaching you or commanding you to worship God in any way that you're not finding in Scripture that God has prescribed for us to worship in, call us out on it. I don't know if that's the way that we should do that. I don't know if that's the way. Where does that idea of worship come from? We want to be fact-checked in everything that we're doing because we don't want to fall victim to teaching as doctrine commandments that were made up by men. Some believe worship should just be free form and absent of any type of discipline or command. So on the flip side of that, because people make too many commands about worship, then we think there shouldn't be any commands about worship. We think we should just worship in how we feel and how we think and how we describe it to be or how we're coming into a place. And you know what? I saw this thing this week as I was driving. This bird flew and did a somersault. And I think we should come into church and do some somersaults because I just thought it was so beautiful. I didn't see that happen this week. I'm just, there's some crazy things out there when it comes to worship that we think is just spontaneity. But the Bible does prescribe ways in which we worship God. That's through disciplines. That's through rules and regulations that are for our good. He's literally telling us, here's how you can worship me that's going to fill you up, that's going to literally provide for you. I love this one because this one deals with old age. Um, and there's not a lot of that in here, but Luke 2, 37. And then as a widow until she was 84 years old, she did not depart from the temple worshiping through fasting and prayer night and day. So an aspect in which this 84-year-old widow is worshiping the Lord is by taking time to separate in her life, to be in, and then at this time is their place of worship, a temple where she fasted and she prayed night and day. Just unceasing fasting and praying. Let me, let me set aside something that I'm just really drawn to, whether it's sugar or TV or chocolate or whatever it is. Let me set aside this because whenever I'm reminded that I so love this thing, I want to use my energy and my time and my, my, my moment in that time to, to just devote it to the Lord in prayer to just give it to the Lord. Let it be a reminder for me. Right now in our culture, that is social media. A lot of times people, especially as Lent is coming up in um, February, at the end of February, um, a lot of people are gonna be like, I'm gonna set aside social media for 40 days because I just wanna fast from that so that I can devote myself to prayer. How often are you gonna be reminded that you're not on social media every time you pull out your phone? You're gonna be reminded because you're just naturally, you wanna go to opening up Facebook, opening up Instagram, opening up Snapchat, that's about all the ones I know of. I know there's a ton more, but anyways. Um, but this is our reality. There are things that we are to do prescribed by the Lord that is an act of worship. Some believe worship, and I kind of alluded to this earlier already, should be an emptying of ourselves in service to God. Yet the Bible says that that's not what actually happens. When we come into this place and we worship, and this is a corporate worship. So this isn't the only place in which we worship. But when we come into this place to worship, we're not coming into this place to think through what were all the good things that I did this week for the Lord. And therefore, I'm going to come. I'm going to bring those things to his feet. I'm just going to empty myself of those things. And I'm just going to serve him in worship. 
yes, worship is about God, but it's not meant to deplete you. It's not meant to empty you. He's created worship of him in order for us to receive fullness of life, to receive life abundant. Worshiping God receives for us the greatest joy that we have. We always talk about this in, in the light of, has anyone seen a good movie? You've kind of, some of you have been on break over the last couple of weeks. Have you seen a good movie? Did you tell somebody about that movie after you watched it? Why? Because you got to get it out. And there's a joy in which you receive when you express to someone else the goodness that you experienced in watching this movie. This is exactly what happens with worship is because of the goodness that we've received from the Lord, we want to express it and get it out. And in actually expressing it and getting out, we then complete the joy that we receive in our worship, in our worship of him. So when we don't worship out of an experience that we've received from the Lord, we're actually robbing ourselves of receiving more joy based on whatever the good thing was that he provided for us, and we're also robbing him of more glory that he is to receive in that moment. It's why 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whatever you're doing in word or deed, whether you're eating or drinking, do it all for the glory of God. Why? Because you receive more joy in whatever it is that you're experiencing, whether it's food, whether it's drink, whether it's word, whether it's deed, you experience the completion of that joy when you give thanks to the Lord and you worship him because of that good gift. Now, obviously, Jesus Christ is our greatest gift that he has given us. There's also the common grace that he gives us of food and drink. And so, I, I mean, I'm a meat eater and I love steak. And so when I eat steak... There's, there's a pleasure that wells up within my soul that I'm like, this is good and right. And in that moment, if it were to just end with that, I would rob myself of the extra joy of expressing that kind of act of worship, expressing that worship by saying then to the Lord, thank you for creating cows <laughs> so that I could then indulge in this. Or fill in whatever it is that, that is your go-to pleasure when it comes to food. Thank you, Lord, for creating that flavor, that taste. I literally, last, last week, I was preaching in a, in a backwoods church in Kentucky. I hope they're not listening to this recording. But anyways, uh, and I, I said, I, mean, I was using the sweet aroma of bacon cooking in the morning because I knew that would resonate with many of them. And it's just the true reality. Like, we didn't think up that flavor. We didn't think up that smell. Like the Lord thought that up and it's good and it's pleasurable and thank you for him for, for doing that. Luke 24, 52, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That's driving the point home. In worship, we return joyful. So let's talk worship. What is it? Is it personal or public or both? Is it okay if it's emotional? What songs do we sing? What style of songs do we sing? Is it okay to use instruments? If not, then we already messed that up. Is worship for us or for God or both? What's, what's an appropriate posture for worship? Can I come up with other scenarios here? Uh, what translation of the Bible do we use? What elements should be in the worship service? How often should we do communion? 
How long should the sermon be? That's rhetorical. And I could go on and on. This topic is important for us because worship is the fuel for discipleship. So if we're the mission of the church, at the end of the day is to glorify God by making disciples. Worship becomes the fuel in which disciples are made. A worshipful person will make disciples. A worshipful person will continue to grow in their own discipleship. Worship matters. Worship matters. And it doesn't just matter in the Sunday, um, Sunday scenario, Sunday service here, gathering. A lot of times when we think of worship, we think, especially if you have a church background, that we, we come into this place, we worship during the songs, and that's our worship. That does matter, though. It's not limited to just that, but that matters. Because there's moments in which you come in here, and you might have had a very difficult week in which you come into this place and you don't feel like I have the energy or the capacity to be able to actually sing songs of worship. And so what I need in that moment is I need collectively the congregation, the community of faith, the people of God singing for me. So that as I come into this place and I stand in the back, I can, I can sit there and hear the voices of others worshiping. And in that moment, you're singing for me to worship. So gathered worship is important. Gathered worship and song is important. Now, can you worship in that same way in your car? Absolutely. You can turn on a, a, a song, and it doesn't have to be a Christian song. You can sing a song that is speaking of the truths of God or the truths of his creation, and you can worship him. It has a beautiful lyric. I love that. You can worship outside of song. You can worship through prayer. That's why we incorporate prayer in our services. That's why we encourage you to pray throughout the week. It's, prayer is an act of worship because prayer is aligning our hearts with God's heart. There are ways in which we worship that's not just in this place that we tend to think. It's throughout the entire week. And so... I want to provide you a little bit of a theology for worship, kind of the two primary, if you were thinking of it like a bicycle, these are the two pedals in which have to be in place in order for true worship to be a reality. John 4, 23 through 24, and it's probably going to be up on the screens. John 4, 23 through 24 says this, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So those are the two bike pedals, spirit and truth. And those are the two things that I want to kind of um, define for us and just kind of lay out or unpack for us what we mean by when we say worship in spirit and what we mean by when we say worship in truth. And so what it's not, the essence of true worship is not external, but it's internal. It's spirit and truth. It's heart and head. It's emotion and thought. Whether we're talking all of life as worship or corporate gatherings for worship, it's all done in spirit and truth. It's internal. It's not necessarily something external. If it was external based, then we would have already messed up today by the fact that our bathrooms aren't working right here. You would have come into this place and some of you might have come in and been like, I really got to go to the bathroom. I got to go upstairs and go up to the second floor to go to the bathroom. 
Now I'm robbed of my opportunity to worship because now I'm frustrated. Something external has affected me to where now I'm not going to be able to worship in a proper way. So sometimes we tend to think that it's the atmosphere that we create that's actually going to breed worship for us. How shabby or nice the building is, how many or few people are in attendance, how good or bad the music is, how gifted or not the preacher is, whether someone near us is doing something on their smartphone other than reading a Bible app or taking notes, whether the pastor kid's in the back doing cartwheels or raising his hands, like... Or sometimes the brewery next door to us power washes during this Sunday morning and like and it's just loud. And like so there's so many external factors that can come into this that could affect our worship. But if we're basing it on external factors, then we would actually never be able to worship. We would never be able to worship because there's always going to be something from an external perspective that's going to affect. So it has to be internal. Christian worship engages both heart and head. It necessitates true doctrine about the Father and His Son. But it also produces emotion about that doctrine. It's both an affair of the heart and an affair of the mind. John Piper sums it up this way. He says, strong affections for God rooted in God's truth. Strong affections for Him rooted in truth. And here's what happens when it's either one or the other. And I'll just kind of use this as equations. If it's truth minus spirit, it equals legalism. It equals legalism. Or it's dead orthodoxy. It produces a church half full of artificial admirers. Truth without spirit produces fundamentalists without the fun. One pastor even said that legalism is just functional demonism. When you think about that in scripture, some of the guys who, who get the Christology most accurate, like the study of who Christ is, are the demons in Scripture. When Jesus shows up, the demons, they know who he is. Have you come to destroy us? Is it your time? Many times, Jesus has to hush up the demons because he's not ready for them to tell everyone that he's the Christ, the Messiah. Without the affection or the spirit of God within us, truth without that can literally become legalism or in some ways demonism. To know the truth and not love it, believe it, or be deeply affectionate for it is no different than, than these demons. On the flip side, spirit minus truth equals licentiousness. It's just empty frenzy. It's a disregarding of accepted commands by God for our good and for his glory. It cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of robust thought. Spirit without truth produces Christian anarchy if there actually can be such a thing. It would argue it no longer is Christian. It'd be like trying to love your spouse without ever knowing their name. Think about that. Without knowing the details and the facts about them. Without knowing what they like and what they dislike. Well, it shouldn't matter. We're just, we just love each other. If you use the example, it'd be like me telling Kelsey, like, I, I just love and adore your, your brown hair and your blue eyes. They're amazing. And if, and if you're new and don't know who my wife is, she has blonde hair and brown eyes. So even though my affections might sound like, oh, that's so sweet and, and beautiful, it's misguided and it's not true. 
She wants me to adore her in truth. God wants us to adore him and worship him in truth, not just in spirit. Spirit plus truth equals worship. It produces a people who are deeply emotional and also who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth about God are literally the bone and marrow of our biblical worship. So I want to share with you a little bit on the truth side. Before Jesus came, the worship in truth would would be the attempt to literally follow all of the commandments of the Old Testament. And if you're thinking, well, there's only 10 of them, that's not that big of a deal. There's more than just the 10, okay? The, The 10 are the start. But in addition to the 10, as Moses recorded throughout Genesis and and, and into the Torah with Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, you also have, it it literally comes into completion of 613 commandments that form the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant. I'm not going to attempt 613 commands in order to rightly worship God. This is not possible for me. I'm still working on the first 10. But God didn't set it up for us in order to achieve true worship by just trying to follow the original message, like the original commandments. He knew that by giving us this standard of righteousness, this rule, this measure, we were not going to achieve it. And by us not achieving it grants for us the reality that we need someone else to achieve it for us. Therefore, we need a Savior to be able to come and achieve these perfectly on our behalf. And then because we didn't achieve them perfectly, he needs to then die for us on our behalf because we're supposed to die by not achieving them. And then by him resurrecting from the grave, he promises us resurrection as well in our soul in our spirit, in our entire life. We get to now live in eternity with him because of what Jesus accomplished. So if it's not for Jesus, we're literally tied to the old law. That's what would need to be our our opportunity to, to, to reach righteousness is by doing those things perfectly. And here's the reality. Even if at some point in your life you reached it and you're like, I had a day where I did all of it perfectly. Well, guess what? There's this entire tale spin. There's this entire history of you not doing it perfectly. So if you're going to try to just do this thing on your own, if you're going to try to achieve righteousness by just figuring it out yourself, I'm just here to tell you, stop. Just stop. Stop wasting time. Christ came and did it for us. So our standard of righteousness now is not by trying to live out the truth of the Old Testament perfectly in our own ability, but rather we now uphold it through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here's the reality. If you just take a couple of the Ten Commandments, don't steal. Before Jesus, I didn't have the ability to not steal. I just stole. I'm not saying like I was just like like one of those kinds of thieves, like just... I'm just like, whatever it looks like, all right? Stealing, lying. We'll go lying, all right? I lied. I didn't have the ability to not lie before Jesus. But because Jesus came and perfectly lived out a life that never lied, and Jesus now lives inside of me, 
the truth that I hold on to is the truth that is in Christ that now gives me the ability to be able to say no to a lie and yes to the truth. If the opportunity arises and in that moment you're asked a question and you can either tell the truth or lie, before Jesus, your best case scenario is a white lie. But still a lie. We're bound to sin if we're not a part of Jesus. But because I have Jesus in me now, who has the ability to overcome sin, I have the ability in that moment to say, you know what, I'm gonna speak the truth because I have Christ in me. He's the standard of my righteousness. He's the person that is living out worship in me. So now I can worship the Father by speaking truth. I can worship the Father by living out the life of Jesus in me. I love what um, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3 says when it refers to us holding to the truth. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and, and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Here's the reality. The only way in which we hold anchor to Jesus is through the truth that is found in Christ. And where do we get that truth in Christ? It's found in what he's taught. It's found in what God has inspired for us in the scriptures. We hold fast to that and not anything else. Because if we were to hold fast to anything else, we're gonna be deceived through spirits and teachings of demons, through spirits and teachings of man, doctrines of men, as I shared in that first passage. We're gonna stray from the truth if we're not anchored to it in Christ alone. You wanna be able to worship in truth? Focus on Jesus. Focus on what he's fulfilled in the Old Testament. Focus on what he brought in the new covenant. Focus on how he interacted with people that were of different races than him, ethnicities of him. Focus on how he um, interacted with the disciples, how he prayed for them, how he loved them, how he served them, how after Peter um, betrayed him three times, 40 days later, or not 40 days later, a couple of weeks later, Jesus is making him breakfast and restoring him in that moment. He's not holding his sin and betrayal against him. How do we forgive others when they've betrayed us? We look to Jesus and how he did it. You throw a breakfast for somebody and you invite them over and you restore them. You forgive them. Forty days after his betrayal, Peter's preaching the sermon at Pentecost saying 3,000 people get saved. That came by Jesus, not his own ability. Jesus restored him. We need to look to Jesus as our truth. Let's be people who have a deep love for sound doctrine, teaching, knowledge of God, and the person of the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. This is why we as a church, we offer what we call the Institute. The Institute is literally geared teaching. It's teaching. It's, it's, it's one of the aspects of us seeing in Acts 2.42 where the church as it was birthed are seeing the people devoted to the apostles, teaching into the fellowship. 
And those kind of two things broken out are they're devoted to everything that Jesus had commanded them as they observed, and they're now teaching it to the church. And then the fellowship is why we have community groups, which we'll talk about next week in our gospel-centered community. But we are to be devoted to both. This aspect of being taught and growing in our knowledge of God as well as growing in our belonging to one another, our community. So what about spirit? Is this our spirit or God's spirit? Jesus' memorable statement in John 3, 6 helps. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. It's not either or, but both and. For those who are new creatures in Christ, our spirit owes its existence and vibrancy to the spirit of God. So as a believer who's worshiping in spirit, yes, there is an aspect in which it is our spirit that we possess, but our spirit has been overtaken and literally become the identity of the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit within us is what produces the fruit of the spirit out of us, which creates worship. God is worshiped when we love one another. God is worshiped when you show patience in difficult situations. God is worshiped and adored when we are gentle with our speech or the tone of our speech. God is worshiped in all those things. He's worshiped when we exercise self-control because Jesus, who exercised perfect self-control, who was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin, his self-control that is now becoming our spirit and growing within our spirit, we now exercise self-control. Guess what? When we do that, God is worshiped because we're worshiping in spirit, the Holy Spirit that is within us, that is coming out of us. We worship in spirit and in true. True worship comes only from spirits made alive and sensitive by the quickening of the spirit of God. God's spirit is literally the one that ignites and energizes our spirit. I love, and, and a lot of times the spirit can kind of be such an ethereal thing, but it, but it is a reality. It's, it is a lot of ethereal stuff there. Like it's, it's things that are not, um, we can't just write it out or we can't just um, put an equation to it like we can with sound doctrine and truth. But the spirit's never going to be in contradiction to the truth. This Holy Spirit is never going to lead you to worship God in a way that you will not find in Scripture. It's just not going to happen. We're not writing new books and adding them to the Bible. It's sufficient. It's sufficient. What we need across all cultures, across all time periods, across all ethnicities, across literally every situation that you walk into, in order for us in that moment to rightly worship God, the Holy Spirit is bringing us to the truth, guiding us in it so that we know how to process that moment, that time, how to worship God in that moment, and how to receive joy in it. He's leading us there. That's why, literally, Jesus, when he's about to depart, he's telling his disciples, I'm going to need you to record this stuff. 
But as you're recording it, just know that you're not having to record it on your own. You're not having to go back and like check your notes and your facts. You're not having to retract. Like, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And this Holy Spirit is going to bring remembrance for you in order for you to record down all that I need you to record down in order for my glory to be spread over the earth as the waters cover the sea so that disciples will be made. People will come from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son and they will be able to worship God rightly by getting to know Jesus through true sound doctrine and the spirit of God breathing life into them. This is what he's doing. And this is what worship is looking like for us. How do I get that spirit in me? How do I get the spirit of God in me? If I need it in order to worship in spirit, God says he's gonna give it to us. You don't have to go, it's not like you can go get it off the shelf in a grocery store. It's not based on what you bring to the table that's going to purchase the spirit of God. I love what he says to the, to the Israelites in Ezekiel 36. In verse 26, he says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you, I love this, and cause you to walk in my statutes, my commands, my teachings. And be careful to obey my rules. How do we obey the truths of God? How do we obey the commands of God? He gives us the spirit. He plants a heart within us that gives us the ability to be able to flesh it out. To be able to live it out. To be able to work it out in our salvation. To be able to wrestle today as we walk through situations in our life. We'll have a flesh side of us that is tempting us that is saying like hey i think you should just try to figure this out on your own i think you should do this we don't trust that we put our trust in the spirit of god that he has given us and as colossians 1 at the end of that chapter says we toil in this with his energy and his strength not ours we wrestle this with his energy and his strength not ours so worship in spirit and truth at no point of it is dependent on you. Think about this. If God hinges a lot of the church on him being worshiped, do you think he's gonna leave that up to us to figure out? No, God, when God wants to do something, he's going to make sure that it gets done. And if he needs people worshiping in spirit and truth, he's going to provide the spirit and he's going to provide the truth in order for them to be able to worship him so that he receives glory. And in that, we get to receive all that we need in joy, in satisfaction, in pleasure, in treasuring him above everything else that this world could possibly offer. Because that's, that's the reality. When you leave from this place, you're going to be met with opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to worship, to worship. We're all worshiping at all times. It's true. We're all worshiping at all times. The issue is the object of our worship. Is our worship 
going towards God or is it going, going towards man? And if I were to go back to, to the stake analogy, if it were to terminate on the stake, that stake was amazing. And it doesn't roll past that and go to the Lord and say, thank you, Lord, for creating this. Then I just worshiped some stake. And our worship can then become idolatry. If we worship kids, if we worship spouse, if we worship sports teams, I mean, goodness, talk about something that's going to let you down over and over and over again. I mean, outside of last night, seeing the Patriots get beat, that was worship for me. That was nice. That was good. I'm also from Tennessee. I don't like the Titans, but it was still, it was good for my soul. But I thank the Lord for it afterwards, you know? I let it roll up. And we won a softball game, and I prayed, thank you for the points that we scored during the year. Now I'm getting off the rails. That was idolatry, but I understand. But our worship ultimately is to be the object. The object must be the Lord. Must be the Lord. Everything else falls short. The way in which we love our spouses, if you have one, if we worship them, we place on them a burden that they were never meant to carry. They will crush under the weight of our worship if we expect them to provide for us something that only the Lord can provide. Same with our kids. Our kids will be crushed under the weight of our worship if we expect them to do things that only the Lord can provide for us. Our jobs, our careers will be crushed under the weight of your worship if you expect those things to provide you all the satisfaction and all the pleasure and all the purpose and, and whatever fill in the blank that you think those things are gonna provide if it's not coming from the Lord himself. And everything I just listed is good. Those are good things. Those are right things. Those are things God has called us to. He's just called us to steward them in a way that worships him, not us worshiping them. So we as a church believe that we are called to make disciples for God's glory through gospel-centered worship. We want you to be worshipers, not just here in this room, but when you walk away from this place. And we know from scripture that the only way that you can worship rightly is through spirit and truth. And that spirit has to be dependent upon the spirit of God guiding you in your worship. And also that it's gonna be grounded in the truth of God his characteristics, his beauties, the way he's designed life to function, the Christian story, narrative. I mean, all of these things that are truths that he's providing to us, we are to grow in our knowledge of because the more we grow in our knowledge of it, the more we actually begin to have a framework for how our lifestyle is supposed to look. I mean, think about it. Like just, just the, the great commandment um, term that God uses that he sums up in, in the New Testament Love your God and love your neighbor. There's thousands of ways for you to love your neighbor. So how do I love my neighbor? He begins fleshing those things out. The more we see Jesus loving his neighbors and the more we see the churches interacting with the communities around them in scripture. Like he provides for us multitude of examples on how we are to love one another. We don't just flippantly figure those things out here. So we need to ground, be grounded in spirit 
and grounded in truth in order for us to worship. And when you're worshiping, make sure that it's always rolling to thank you, Jesus, for what you've done and what you've provided. For from you and to you and through you are all things. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We're thankful that we have an opportunity to worship. Worship is the fuel for our discipleship. Worship drives our service, our belonging to one another. It gives us the the energy that we need to be able to accomplish your mission. And I love it because it's pointing us back to you every single time, every single time. So that in anything we do, whether we sing a great song or we preach a great sermon or we lead someone to the Lord, we share the gospel with them, worship creates the opportunity for us to not boast in ourselves, but we boast in you because it's about you. And that's the most freeing place for us to be. So we thank you, God, for providing worship, for creating worship. So that's less about us and more about you. As John the Baptist said, we want you to increase, but we must decrease. That's worship. That's worship. Thank you, Jesus, through your life and your death and your resurrection for creating a way for us to be able to worship and to be able to experience joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at